0: Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 3, Episode S, engulfed by Jade. We've come to the very edge of ancient China, Inner Mongolia. In later times, this will be the western end of the Great Wall of China. There's a Great Wall here now, but it's not the wall that it's going to become famous for. And in modern times, this place is going to be the launch pad for China's manned spaceships. But we're visiting here far before all of that. We're here in the 300s AD. The landscape here, the edge of ancient China is a harsh one. There are these burrs of naked rock rising from the earth to the north and to the south. The ancient Chinese called these the barren ridges, which is an appropriate name because no trees grow on these slopes, no shrubs even. All there are to break the monotony of the the grey sand, the shadow of rocky overhangs. And caravans, heavy with goods, drag lines through the dust between these two great mountains. Their drivers and their camels, looking weary from a long journey. Another name that the ancient Chinese had for this place was the Jade Gate. And that's also an appropriate name, because if you went down to one of those caravans and you caught a glimpse into their sacks, you'd see wrapped up, safe and secure, the highly prized stone, Jade taken from a city far away, down the Silk Road. So here we are at the Jade Gate. And with us is a Chinese monk, a young man, looking out, out of China, down the Silk Road. And he describes what he saw then as something not Chinese, or or, or not Mongolian, or, or, or not even Iranian, but Something Indian. He said, the people past this point, they follow Indian customs, more or less. And, and though they have their own languages, the scholars of this place read and write Sanskrit, the classical language of North India. This week, we return to this dry land shaped by India, the Great Tarim Basin. It's a huge desert, with a string of cities on the northern fringe and another string down the south. And the last episode, we visited the biggest city on the northern string. This week, we're going to be heading towards the biggest city of the south. It's going to be a long and dusty journey. So pack your umbrella, maybe one of those really cool umbrellas that ancient Chinese folk had, you know, the ones that come out of the backpack and then lean over you. It's a brilliant idea, actually. I don't, I don't know what happened to that. Maybe we should try and resurrect it. Anyway, pack your umbrella and lots of water, because once again, we're going off into the desert sands. Our story starts well within ancient China, in the city of Linfen, although that's not going to be on the test. There, a young boy has fallen sick. And that's an especial worry for his family because the young boy is one of four brothers and the three other brothers have all died. His father is determined that this, his last child, won't be lost to illness. So he sends him to a Buddhist monastery, one of the sort of newfangled Buddhist monasteries that are creeping up all over China. Because in the monastery there are medicines and experts in, in curing illness. And good news, the young boy got better. But bad news, the young boy refused to come out of the monastery. Once he was there amongst the monks, he said that he preferred to be away from the the dust of day-to-day life. So he stayed in the monastery and became a monk himself. And he didn't come out for almost any reason. Even when his mother died, he didn't leave the monastery to come and to take care of his father. This young boy had learnt to love order and discipline the rigid rules of the monastery. Maybe it was because his early life was so full of people disappearing that he just wanted something secure and fixed. Or maybe he's just one of those people who was that way inclined. His name was Fasian or Fahim. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. And actually He's going to go on and go into India, going to become the earliest traveller between China and India, whose records we still have. Now, if you're in one of these earlier Chinese monasteries, and you love order and discipline, you've got a problem. Because the Buddhist rules for monks, one of the three baskets, as it's called, of Buddhist knowledge... They were supposed to be given by the Buddha, way back in India. But the Chinese monasteries didn't have copies of these rules. They had several oral versions that had reached China by word of mouth from India. But having several versions of the rules is at least a few versions too many. And oral versions, well, that's not ideal. You could just be making the rules up to suit you at that moment. The boy who loved discipline, Fashen, was not satisfied. He decided to head out to India, to go to where the original rules were written down, to get a copy of them, to sort out these disputes about what the rules are, once and for all. So he set out with some friends westwards. And it was Fashen who was the young man who was looking out into the deserts at the Jade Gate and seeing strings of Indianized cities. By that time, by the time he'd got to the Jade Gate, he'd already been on the road for a long time and had had some experience of desert travel. He'd been through the Gobi Desert. Here on the edge of ancient China, things already looked different. People were wearing roughly the same clothing that Fasien had grown up with, only it was made of wool and fur rather than silk. And now Fasian was leaving even this semi-familiar part of China and heading out into these Indianized cultures. It wasn't a step into the complete unknown, though. Fasian would have had some idea of India even before he left China, because the Chinese had known about India for an awful long time. First contact had come many centuries before. The Chinese had been trying to form alliances in Central Asia with the Cushions. They were those nomadic horse warriors who'd once lived on the border of China. Then they were living in what's nowadays Afghanistan. So the Chinese sent an ambassador to them called Chang Qian, not on the test, and he made it all the way to the River Indus. And he even took a very quick peek over into the rest of India and heard some stories about what was going on in there. Now the stories that he brought back to China of India weren't exactly reliable. For example, he described Kashmir as flat and warm, which it isn't. Anyway, when the ambassador came home with these stories of India, the emperor was excited, he was the Han emperor, and he wanted to try and find out more. And in, in particular, he wanted to find a route into India so that he'd have a second back door for trade into Central Asia. But the early stages of china india relations didn't go very well. The Han Emperor sent emissaries, but they were constantly rebuffed by the Indian kings. They met with the Indo-Greek king Aziles, and he seemed to have been worried about Chinese power expanding in the area because he treated the emissary rudely, even beat him up and sent him home. Aziles' son didn't think like his father though. When he became king, he was much more enthusiastic and he, in fact he sent an embassy to China. But when China sent a return embassy, the son had died and the new king was hostile again. China had missed its little window of opportunity. The Chinese records claim that they imposed their own king on the borders of India, but if so, It must have been during the complete chaos of the Kushan invasions and it didn't last more than a few years. The Indian records of it are lost to time. So the initial Chinese impressions of India were a pretty hostile place and they were also pretty inaccurate. But as Indians brought Buddhism to China, well, maybe... The Chinese picture of India would have become more accurate, but it also would have become less positive. In Chinese ideology, China is the middle kingdom, the centre of the earth. But that's not the case in Buddhism. In Buddhism, India is kind of the centre of the earth. It's similar to Praminical Orthodoxy with a mountain at the centre, Mount Meru, Sumeru. And it's surrounded by the continent, which India's on, jambudipa Gosh, terribly mispronounced. Apologies. China, in this cosmology, is on the edge of that. And India is closer to the centre. So China's on the fringes. And that really is offensive to the Chinese way of looking at the world. So when this idea of Buddhism came to China, it would have made Chinese people, whether they were Buddhist or not, feel a little bit uncomfortable. And you can detect in some of the texts of that time, particularly the Buddhist texts, this sort of borderland complex, as it's been called. This feeling that people in China are on the edge and they feel insecure and they look towards India with admiration. You see this sometimes when ancient Chinese went to meet Indians. Sometimes the ancient Chinese would go to India and decide that they hated China, right? I mean, the the Chinese would kind of give up their loyalty to their home country. India was the, the homeland of the Buddha and much more wonderful than China in every way, that insecurity playing out. More often, though, when Chinese went to India, they got very defensive indeed. They became very keen to impress on Indians that China is also a land of the Buddha, And they would get very upset when people would say that China is a land of barbarians, of lechers, unfit for Indian ideas. So fashien has got this idea of India, but it's an idea that's not wholly positive. You know, it might make him feel a bit uncomfortable, a bit inferior. He's not daunted. He sets out to fetch those original rules. Beyond the Jade Gate, the first thing he comes across is the Great Salt Marsh. Waters from around the Taran Basin drain here. It's a sort of lake at the edge of the desert. It's really salty because of all the salt from the mountains and because the lake doesn't go anywhere, it just dries up. Nowadays, it's almost completely dry. Once he had passed the Salt Lake, Fashen was into the desert proper. First, he and his friends tried to take the northern route around the desert, at the rim of the desert, in the shadow of the mountains, hopping from one city to the next. But they were not well received. The people were rude, Fanxian tells us. Presumably, that's a way to save face when confronted with a much more hostile reception, because the reception was so hostile that they had to backtrack back towards China. They found a city where they could stock up on supplies, where people would sell things to them, and then they set out southwest across the great desert itself. And about that journey across the desert, Fassien says almost nothing at all. For one and a half months, they walked across the sand dunes. They didn't see any homes, they didn't see any buildings, they didn't see any people. They crossed some rivers, just enough to keep their water supplies up. But for the most part, it was the endless, terrible heat and pain. As with so much real suffering, there's simply not much to talk about. It's monotonous. As Facien puts it, such things exceed all understanding. After 40 days of boring pain, they saw on the horizon, buildings. More than just buildings, as they came closer, they saw it was a complex of towns and cities. This was it. This was the place, the city from which those jade caravans had come, and made their way into China. This was the great land of Khotan. The legendary city of Khotan has many origin stories. According to one, Buddha came to a hill next to a great lake. And he looked out and he ordered his followers to dig a mountain away and channel the lake into a river. So the lake flowed out and the dry land that was left was settled and became Khotan. It's a curious version of the flood myth that's found all over the world. Maybe one that fits especially well with the dry, featureless deserts around Khotan, though they tell the same story about Tibet, where it doesn't fit so well. Another legend about the founding of Khotan says that the first king of Khotan emerged from the earth herself. Although this is actually probably from a later misunderstanding of the name Khotan, which in later t- late translations might mean something like "earth's breast." That can't be its original meaning. One of the oldest legends, though, is that Khotan is an Indian settlement. Ashoka the Great, the great emperor of ancient India. His eldest son was working in Kashmir. And there was some disagreement between him and Ashoka, and the son was expelled. It was the son, by the way. I think I said it was the brother in the last episode. Apologies for that. So the son left Kashmir and he took a bunch of livestock with him and he he got them, herded them through the mountains to the other side, fleeing from his brother. And there he found a place where the river flowed down from the mountains into the desert. There he set up the city of Khotan and founded a dynasty that would last 1,200 years. That story's got at least some truth to it, by the way. The dynasty that was founded did last around 1,200 years, but whether it was Ashoka's son, well, we've got no real source on that, and it doesn't seem to match the genetic evidence and the other evidence that we have. Behind Khotan, to the south, are the mountains, and from there come Khotan's two sources of life and wealth. Two rivers flow down from the mountains into the Great Basin. One, flowing to the east of the city, contained white jade. It was called the White Jade River. The other, flowing to the west of the city, contained black jade. It was called the Black Jade River. And often, the people of the city could be found wading into the waters, searching for this precious stone, piling up jade on the banks, and waiting for caravans to take it off to China. The ancient Chinese thought that these rivers split, the east heading towards China and that great salt marsh, and the west heading towards the Caspian Sea. There was even a story in China that the river sunk into the earth for a thousand miles and then came out as the Yellow River, one of the two great rivers of China. The truth is more remarkable, perhaps. The river snakes its way north. In ancient times it seems to have kept its level for a long distance but the region is drier now and in winter it sinks into the sand altogether, disappearing. In the summer though it still stretches further into the sands all the way to the great Tarim River that curves around the north of the desert and then it heads east towards the Great Salt Marsh and ancient China. On the fringes of Cotan, there are a number of buildings, some of them small settlements, but there are temples too. The Cotanese would generally follow Indian customs for burials. They would be cremated. But the kings weren't cremated. They were put into a coffin, and the coffin was carried out into the north, into the sands. And it would be then placed into a temple they'd constructed out there. I don't think any of the temples have actually been found by archaeologists, but there must have been a lot of them out there. And there are other things in the desert too. There's a stupa some uh, 39 miles north of the city in the desert. It's almost 7 metres tall. And around the walkway are these humongous statues on either side, 4 metres tall. Maybe that was the first monument Facien would have seen as he was making his way south. On that long torturous journey. And it would have been an obviously Indian monument. The figures are carved more or less exactly in Mathura style. Mathura style is that ancient Indian style which is often thought as, of as, as the homegrown style, not the one influenced by Mediterranean art. Cassian made his way past all of these outer settlements and into the city proper, and he went to see the king of Khotan. We hear about the king from later accounts, but these are the descendants of Ashoka, allegedly, although perhaps just as likely they were Iranian or Central Asian in origin. The kings wore a golden cap. It was three-pronged like a, a cockerel's comb. And behind it, two flaps swang down. They're about five inches wide and a full two foot long. And as Fasienne was going to see the king, there'd be booming drums and clashing cymbals, a whole fuss of royalty going on. And by his side would be his soldiers, head general, his two leading spearmen, five of his best halberdiers and about a hundred swordsmen, just in case they weren't good enough. The king of Cotan was the preeminent figure in this part of the world. And through much of history, he ruled not only Cotan, but also the city on either side, to the east and to the west, up and down that string of cities. He was almost always the most powerful king on the southern rim of the Tarim Basin. And often enough, the most powerful king in the whole Taran Basin. But he wasn't always supreme. Sometimes he was independent ruler of his own lands. Sometimes, he was at the mercy of the Huns or the Chinese. But it doesn't seem to have been a very prostrate sort of mercy. He seems to have just sent tributes of jade and finely crafted boxes and horses, keeping those big players happy while ruling his own land as he saw fit. During some periods of history, there were Chinese garrisons situated just outside the city, but they didn't last all that long. So... The big man of the Taran Basin, the King of Kotan, greeted Fasien and his friends. And apparently they were much more welcome here than they were on the northern fringe of the basin. It had been a good idea to cross the desert. And Fasien was given apartments in one of the biggest monasteries of the city. The city was packed with big monasteries, 14 large ones in all and a bunch of smaller ones too. Altogether, they housed 10,000 monks. Fascien's monastery alone had 3,000. And the sheer size of these operations must have been clearest at mealtimes. In Fascien's monastery, the monks would file down from their rooms or from the courtyard in silence into the eating hall. They would take their seats one by one. And then they would start to eat. And they would eat in silence too, making sure that even their dishes didn't make any clang on the table. And if a monk wanted more rice or more flavoured ghee, he wouldn't ask for it. He would raise his fingers and give a special signal. All of this can actually be understood as being in line with Indian custom, at least with Indian rules, although I'm not sure the rules were followed quite so strictly in much of India. the whole of Khotan was profoundly Buddhist. In fact, Tha came away with the impression that there wasn't a single person in the whole city who wasn't devoted to the Buddha. And certainly, Buddhism reached deep into Khotanese culture. It wasn't just that they kept apartments for foreign monks who might just wander in from the desert sands. It wasn't just the huge number of monasteries. It was in the everyday folks' everyday lives. Houses in the city were sort of clustered together, and each house outside of it had a great tower, 22 foot tall or more, and these were monuments to the Buddha, used for worship. And the kings of Khotan were devoutly Buddhist too, most of them. For 80 years prior prior to Faschen's visit, they had been constructing a huge Buddhist monument out in the desert to the east of the city. More than 200 foot high, a great tower, and behind that, this beautiful hall of the Buddha. The pillars of this place were covered in gold leaf. And not just the pillars, the door frames too. And not just the doors, even the windows were plastered in real gold. And people from all over the south of the Tarim Basin would send their riches and their jewels to Kotan to keep the big king happy and he had put them into this wonderful Buddhist monument. The sort of Buddhism prevalent in Khotan at this time was Mahayana Buddhism, Greater Vehicle Buddhism. That's the type of Buddhism that predominates in China today, and it was Fa own form of Buddhism, so he would have felt at least somewhat at home with it. In fact, Mahayana Buddhism was so central to Cotanese culture that every single text we've found there is Mahayana Buddhist. In fact, all but one of them is a translation of an Indian Mahayana text. Translation of these texts seems to have got going seriously a century or so before Fasyen arrived. Texts were taken in from Kashmir and sometimes from elsewhere in India and translated. The, The earlier traditions of Buddhism had left traces all over the Tarim Basin, but in... This city, Mahayana Buddhism, had become so predominant that the earlier texts were completely obliterated and none of them remain. Vasyan stayed in the city long enough to get a sense of its pleasures. Don't imagine that it was a city of dull-faced, boring monks. There was lots of living the high life, as much as any of the trading cities on this part of the Silk Road. People in the city were known for their songs, and especially for their theatre. Normally it was given a sort of religious Buddhist twist, but nonetheless it was exuberant. And the people of the town were were colourful. Women, for example, wore long skirts, decorated at the end with this this broad band of of stitched colour, bright reds and, and greens, swirls woven into the wool. Poorer women wore trousers. More practical for riding horses, and, and poorer women would ride horses no less than their husbands did. Men wore trousers. Generally, they were a bit more plain than the women's clothing. Although, one pair that we found it is stitched together from tapestry with images of centaurs from Iran. The whole city was a thoroughfare for fine textiles. And more than a thoroughfare, it produced its own textiles. An old tale tells of how this became the first place outside of China to produce its own silk. The story goes that the king of Khotan was desperate for the secret of silk, and he would send emissaries to to the Chinese emperor asking for it, begging for it. But the Chinese wouldn't give up the secret. Eventually... The king of Khotan realised he was never going to squeeze it out of them, so he let the issue drop. A while later, he asked for a marriage alliance. He wanted to marry one of the Chinese princesses. Great, thought the Chinese, let's do that. So the king of Khotan sent an emissary, called Vijaya Jaya, by the way. fine Indian name, like many of the Khotanese kings. Anyway, Vijaya Jaya sent an emissary with a, a special message for the, the future queen. Hey, if you want to keep wearing silk when you're a queen of Cotan, you'd better, better bring some silkworms with you. We've, we've got no silk of our own here. Well, the princess very much did want to keep wearing silk. So she hid some silkworms in her headdress, and some mulberry seeds too, to grow things for the worms to eat. And with those little blighters wriggling away in her hair, she promptly left for her wedding in Khotan. None of the guards at the border of China were likely to check the hair of a bride-to-be. It's a little bit invasive, especially when it's a princess. And anyway, who on earth hides worms in their hair? So, the princess passed through, out of China, her secret undiscovered. When she got to Kotan, she planted the mulberry trees, and she had the silkworms bred. And as the new queen of Cotan, she declared that no one was allowed to kill the silkworms until they'd become moths and they'd flown away. And that ensured that the silk industry in Cotan could sustain, it could sustain itself. Now, of course... With all of the caravans going from Cotan to China carrying all that jade, she almost certainly could have got herself some good Chinese silk, but I suppose the Khotanese, in general had a pretty sharp fashion sense, and the Queen reckoned that homemade is best. As I said earlier, the Chinese had more or less ruled Cotan on and off for a while. And because of the garrison of Chinese troops that had been built outside the city, Chinese tastes, ideas and goods made their way down to the everyday folk of the city. It wasn't just the silk for the aristocracy. There were mirrors, there were Taoism and things like that, affecting everyday folk. So Fasien explored the pleasures of the city, and he clearly liked it a lot. He stayed for more than three months, long enough to see one of the great festivals. In this festival, the area by the the city gate would be covered over with a great canopy of cloth. And the cloth formed a sort of pavilion. It would be decorated, and the city at large would be decorated with flags of multicoloured silk and flowers, tens of thousands of flags strung up across the city. On the first day of the month, The king and his retinue came to take their seats at the gate, under the canopy. Meanwhile, far away from the city, the monks of the greatest monastery began pushing an image of the Buddha. It was an image that was perched on this huge cart, a tower 35 foot high on top of the cart. It was decorated on all sides with gold and silver. And on either side of the image of the Buddha were images of Bodhisattvas. And below that the Devas, the Indian gods, Shiva, Vishnu, Brahma, Parvati, and the rest ringing around. So the monks of the great monastery started to push this cart towards the city. When the king saw it coming towards the city, he took off his great golden cockerel headrest He slipped off his shoes. He grabbed some incense with one hand, some flowers with the other, and he went out to meet the Buddha image. And after him, all his followers slipped off their shoes too and came behind. When the cart was within a hundred feet of the city, the king bowed down his head to the ground. An ostentatious display of humbling yourself before the Buddha. Then the king burnt the incense and threw the flowers over the image. The cart was pushed on into the city, and as it came in, flowers showered down it from the walls and the rooftops. And that was just the first day of this festival. The next day, the next biggest monastery pushed up their towering cart, and the king did the same. And then the next day, the next monastery did theirs, and so on through the 14 large monasteries across 14 different days. There's another story from a later text I like about the king of Khotan's Buddhist desires. One day, an image of the Buddha appeared in the desert, a huge thing, 18 foot tall. People said that it had come from the south on its own, perhaps from India itself. The king of Khotan wanted this statue for himself, so he sent out his men And one of those great carts that seemed to have just been lying around in the city of Khotan. And they picked up the image and they put it on the cart somehow and they started to head back towards the city. It was a long way off and they had to stop for the night, but when they woke, the Buddha image had gone from the cart. Who had taken it? Where had they been? How could you even steal such a huge thing without anyone noticing it and cart it away into the open desert without a sound, without leaving a track? The men hunted around in the fine sand. Until at last, they circled their way back to the place where they had found the image originally. And there it was. The Buddha image had returned to the place that it had chosen for itself. It was not going to be moved. Whether that was the tall story of some lazy soldiers or the firm mindedness of a Buddha image, I'll let you decide. But the king realized that he couldn't have the Buddha image in his own city. He still wanted to do something to honor it, so he built a tower over it and he hired 400 people to look after the statue in the tower. And actually, that seems to be a very good job because if you were one of these 400 people looking after the Buddha image, if you got ill or you got injured, it didn't matter how severe the illness or injury, a fleck of gold leaf from the statue would cure you. Now, with such great health insurance, soon 400 families settled down with those 400 workers. And the numbers grew around that until a small town was built there, out in the desert, away from Cotan. We have some letters of Cotan, letters of merchants, and, and an interesting letter from a member of the aristocracy asking a prince for medicine and a bunch of personal favours. They're really wonderful things. They're the kind of documents where you really see, feel like you get to know the authors personally. You form a like or a dislike of them. But those letters are from a later time, so we're going to leave them for now. From our period, sort of Gupta era, almost all the documents we have are translations of Indian Mahayana texts. But there's one exception. Kind of. It's a book that nowadays is scattered across three continents – London, America, Germany, Japan, Kolkata, all of them have some of the pages. And it might be the earliest of any of the texts we have from KOTAN. It's definitely the longest, even though if you put all of those pages from across the world together, it's still incomplete. And this book wasn't just a translation of some Indian text. It's an original poem, written in the local language, KOTANESE. The book gives fresh life to some of the old Indian texts that had been passing through the city. The author had written it for the education of a man's children. The man was called Zambasta. The name of the book is The Book of Zambasta. The book contains the basics of education along the Buddhist Mahayana route, taking ideas from Mahayana texts and distilling them down, or taking stories uh, from the Mahayana and older Buddhist sources and telling them in a new way. And much of the book is very mainstream Mahayana Buddhist stuff, of exactly the sort that you could find in Kashmir, say, a biography of the Buddha. There's one chapter an argument that everything is an illusion, another chapter, a bunch of stuff on how to become the perfect being, everything the young readers needed to perform the rituals and to get the self-restraint to achieve enlightenment. So, when there's a chapter on love, for example, it's about the very peaceful love a Buddhist should obtain. It goes like this. One should sit down properly, calmly, in a very calm place. One should collect all one's senses very calmly. With calm senses, one should contemplate one's body. These limbs of mine are all made of atoms. Earth, water, wind, fire have come together. In every particle of me, space is in the middle of them. Such is this space that it makes much endless freedom for everyone outside. One should think of one's atoms as utterly pure. Such are one's external ones. So only are beryl stones. As gold gleams, they are so very gleaming soft. They smell just like heavenly perfume. In every being, the atoms are utterly pure, flawless. Lovely. But in amongst all of this high-minded Mahayana Buddhist stuff, there are some traces of worldly knowledge. The chapter on this detached love is not to be confused at all with a later chapter on wisdom. It's a bit fragmentary, but it goes something like this. So with falsehoods women deceive. They see many. This one is smitten, and in this way he may fall. In the same manner many of them something, 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 All indeed one another, as women deceive. A later section from the same chapter. Such are their deeds, that's women, improper, evil. One intoxicated with passion does not behold their fault. Something, something, something. She shows a lovely mind. At once she makes her trickery, her deception visible. And then it says, A famous monk read this section on women many times for the restraining of his mind, and said, Thus indeed, I remained as agitated as the ocean when he had read this sutra. In fact, there was no lying quiet for me, like the eyelashes, the hairs between the eyebrows, the hairs on the cheek. It's kind of a touchingly personal moment here, this celibate man's struggle. But the rest of it, the... Being extremely negative about women. Well, I guess that's the sort of thing monks tell each other. Another chapter is a sort of cheats guide. Something to mug up for the test if you've not been attention during that class. It's a chapter with one key verse from each of the important Buddhist sutras. Most of the sutras we haven't even found though. It goes like this. With unseeing sight... Do I really see the Buddha? There is no present arrival for one aborn, unborn at the previous end. Next verse. He has recognised all rightness, the former, all the present, and all the future. Rightly, therefore, his name is Buddha. Another verse. Whatever one sees with the eye, one has not yet really seen before, because all samskaras always change every moment. You get the idea. Quick, hard-hitting stuff. There's even some practical knowledge of mountain life. Half the pages of this chapter are missing, so we only get every other line, which is a great shame. But you can get a sense of this this idea, this book that's come from a city living in the shadows of the mountain, whose wealth the rivers come purely from the mountains. It goes a bit like this. In spring, overgrown are all kinds of good. Various herbs, elixirs, perfumes, flowers, something, something, something. Where it is not overgrown, there is metal. In summer, the clouds thunder very loudly. The rains rain down, streams flow down from the mountains. Much other water moves inside the mountain. It flows down from the mountains. All the water flows away, something, something, something. Makes eddies where deep whirlpools, something, something, something. In places, it rushes down as only torrents rush down. Elsewhere, it spreads out. Many streams go forth. Elsewhere, on the bank, thick, collected, something, something, something. And there's much more. This is a book that's well worth exploring, even if this incompleteness makes it fr- so frustrating. It feels like you're on the edge of, of understanding what life was like in Cotan for these rich young people. But even in its fragmentary state, it clearly tells us the culture of Cotan was deeply Indian. Every week we read something from the original sources, now, the obvious thing to do this week would be to read something from Facien's book he left about his travels. But we're going to be following Facien's journey as he goes on into India and then across the sea. We'll be doing that in the next episode, so let's leave his work until then. Instead, I thought we'd try and pursue what it's like for everyday folk. We're going to read a letter written by a Chinese merchant to a Cotonese merchant. And it's kind of mundane. But we've been pursuing the mundane because the mundane, I think, is glorious. The letter goes like this. To the noble Lord, the chief merchant Aspendut, sent by your servant. To the noble Lord Aspendut, blessings and homage, and it would be a good day for him who might see you healthy and safe, happy, free from illness and content. From your servant. And for me, the day would be better still if I might see you myself and might pay homage to you from nearby as homage is offered to the gods. From inside China, I've had worse, not better news day by day. And whatever I might write concerning Akurmatasak, pronunciation, sorry, how he himself went away and what he had, I've become isolated. And behold, I stare here in Guzang, and I do not go hither and thither, and there is no caravan departing from here. In Guzang, there are four bundles of white jade for dispatch, and 2,500 measures of pepper for dispatch, and a double prasatka of something unclear, and five prasatkas of risk, and half a starter of silver. When Gautas went away from Guzang, I went after him, and I came to Dunhang. Dunhang is this city that's on the edge of the Tarim Desert, the Chinese edge, near the great salt lake. But I was prevented from straying outside and leaving China altogether. If Gautas had found a level route, then I would have brought out the Black Jade. Many Sogdians were ready to leave, but they could not leave. For Gautas went by the mountains. I would have remained in Daohong, but they, the, the Sogdians, were destitute. I depend on charity from your prick, for I am serving in Guzang. Here the letter gets a bit patchy. It says things like, I'm very wretched. The guy is pleading for money. When it gets clear again, it goes like this I heard thus, Kastrang. Owed you twenty starters of silver, and he declared thus, I will bring it. He gave me the silver, and I weighed it, and there were only four and a half starters altogether. I asked, If he sent the twenty starters, why do you give me four and a half starters? He said thus, Aspandat found me on the way, and he gave it to me. He said thus, There are seven and a half starters of silver, and for four starters I obtained four loads. And the blacks took the silver, for they said thus, We have no money. For according to them, it is better that I should be wretched than they. If you should hear how Akumastak has done me harm, then you should pay heed to this too. Sent by your servant, this letter was written from Gazan in the third month on the 30th day. That's it for this week. A peculiar letter, but it sort of gives you a sense of the difficulties and the worries of everyday folk, and also of how connected people in Cotan were to China, even though they have this deep Indian culture, in this part of of their history at least, they're still talking every day to people in China, and making deals with them, and hearing about how things in China are going. I love that stuff where you get so close to normal people. Well, fairly normal. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you have been enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to my, to my wife's charity, the Snail Situ Patrick Memorial Fund. There are details on the website. I need to update the website, but the details are still there. And there's a link to that in the description. Thank you so much for the people who have been donating. It means so much to me, I can't say. Have a great week. Take care.